Paul's, we are continuing our study through the book of 1 Peter. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at a whopping three verses, verses 10 through 12 uh, this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and Carter over here would gladly give one. Bring one right to your seat to follow along with us. Anyone need a Bible? He's ready to, he's ready to serve. All right, as you're turning there, 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, we definitely need to be praying for those families involved in that the, the bad weather. I, I read that uh, that it went through at least six states. Um, six people died in that Amazon warehouse in Illinois. Seventy people in Kentucky. Three here in Missouri. Said that more than 30 tornadoes have been reported across six states, stretching across the Mississippi Valley, southeast and Midwest. In Kentucky, they said there were four tornadoes, one of which stayed on the ground for more than 200 miles after touching down. Almost 60,000 Kentuckians had been left without power. I mean, I think Joplin was like, what, six miles? Of the, this is over 200 miles. Just the devastation of this. And so we need to be praying for them. I'm sure as the, as the days go on and the weeks go on, we'll be in contact with other Calvaries in the areas in ways that we can help as a church. And and get out there and just be a part of that. But uh, definitely be praying for the families affected by that. And, and if you have any families affected by that as well, let us know as a church where we can help uh, as well and, and, and see what we can do. So uh, with that, let's read First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 10. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, that they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. The title of my message this morning is Make the Connection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning that we could spend together in your word. Holy Spirit, thank you for doing that work in our lives to reveal to us things that we need to hear from your word that would change our lives and draw us closer to you in our relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We do pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you today, they're not born again this morning. Lord, would you especially speak to their heart? So, Lord, we're grateful for this time together. We ask your blessing upon our children as they're ministered to down below in the basement, Lord, as they hear the word of God taught, speak to their hearts, that even at a young age they would come to faith in your son, Jesus Christ. So, bless our time together here, we pray in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One man wrote this, Those of you who are placing Christmas lights slash decorations in your front yards, can you please avoid anything that has red or blue flashing lights together? Every time I come around the corner, I think it's the police and I have a panic attack. <laughs> he goes on. I have to break hard, toss my drink out the window, fasten my seatbelt, throw my phone on the floor, turn my radio down and push the gun under the seat. All while trying to drive. It's just too much drama even for Christmas. Thank you for your cooperation and understanding. <laughs> How about this one? My dog ate a string of Christmas lights, but the vet was able to remove them. My dog was delighted. <laughs> Just two more. I'm warning you ahead of time. 
So a friend of mine was putting up Christmas lights and they got stuck in her hair. She was lightheaded. Last one, promise. Well, for this morning, not the future. My coworkers are like Christmas lights. Half of them don't work and the other half aren't that bright. <laughs> I admit to you that I really don't like putting up Christmas lights. When it comes to Christmas decorations, my family, they sing the song, You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch, because they know I just don't like it. And I have to say, though, this year when the weather was 75 degrees and it was warm outside and sunny, I didn't mind it as much. Going out there, it was nice. Usually it's it's 30 degrees with a 20-mile-per-hour wind and a wind chill of minus 10, right? And you're going, oh, man. And, you know, I could never understand how you can pull your lights out from last year Plug them into the wall. They all work. Great. Put them all up. Plug them into the socket and nothing. How is it from one place to the other, they go, I, I, I don't get it. So now I just throw them away after each year and I buy new ones every year. And Back in the old days, you know, it was one bad bulb would keep the whole strand from lighting up. But now they, they brag, the newer strands, you know, well, if one goes out, they'll, they'll all stay lit. Well, my question is, why do 25 go out and 50 stay lit? I mean, that doesn't make sense either. But the problem is, there's loose connections. And they don't guarantee that you won't have any loose connections. Listen, God has guaranteed from His Word that when it comes to His prophetic Word, there will be no loose connections. And to back that up, God has given us hundreds of prophecies concerning Christ first coming and concerning his second coming, stretching like strands of Christmas lights from one end of the Old Testament to the other end of the New Testament. Now, the difference would, would now what difference would it make if, if one of the Christmas lights, rather, if one of those prophecies wasn't fulfilled? Well, the whole strand would go out. In other words, God's word would not be true. But we know God's word is truth, and no other holy book makes the predictions the Bible does, and then backs it up by coming true 100% of the time. Really, the test to prove that the Bible is truly inspired by God, there has to be 100% fulfillment. That means no lights out at all. All predictions, all prophecies must come to pass. And since the very first prophecy found in scriptures, they have been and will be all fulfilled, stretching across centuries, connecting one strand to the other. Every last prophecy will be connected and finally fulfilled, just as God says it will. Because he says he's alone, that he's alone the one that can, can predict the future. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. He says, remember the former things of old. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. He's saying to us, he's going to say things that are not yet done and his counsel will stand. He will do according to his good pleasure. Now that doesn't mean that we completely understand how all the prophecies connect. But this we know, they will connect. With that said, when it comes to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10-12, through 12, Peter has been talking about salvation. He's been writing to those persecuted believers who, as we have seen, are scattered throughout Asia Minor, and he wants them to understand just how great this salvation is 
that we have. That's what's on Peter's mind as he writes these next few verses. So far, the word salvation appears three times. Peter says in verse 5, You who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He says in verse 9, Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And now in verse 10, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. Salvation. I don't think there's more of an assuring word than, and more comforting word than, than, than that word salvation. It appears hundreds of times in Scripture, save, saving, salvation, about 400 times. It has a broad sense of its meaning. It can mean anything from being saved physically from harm's way to being saved eternally from sin and death and hell. Oh, how the world needs to be saved today. It needs to be saved because of the many terrible weapons that have been created to destroy it. These great cities we're, we're, we're hearing on the news almost every night, the, the violent salvation, the lawlessness, murders and muggings, the crimes that are committed. Oh, salvation. We need salvation from lawlessness. We have friends and family that need salvation. Because the Bible says we've all broken God's laws. We've all sinned against God. We were all lawless. We all need salvation. And for us that are saved, we need to make sure we don't take that salvation for granted. Because salvation has been God's plan from the very beginning. Paul wrote to Timothy when he said, Timothy, God desires all men to be saved. That's God's great desire. That's that's God's great hope that people would come to salvation. And we find that all throughout Scripture. And again, that's what Peter's talking about in these few verses this morning. When it comes to salvation, Peter says the prophets, they predicted it. The angels, they pondered it. And Jesus provided for it. And that's our three points this morning if you're taking notes. The prophets predicted it. The angels pondered it. Jesus provided it all having to do with our salvation. First, number one, the prophets predicted it. Look at verse 10. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Let's stop there. One comedian said, Of all the prophets, I never really trusted Joni, Jonah. rather. There's just something fishy about that guy. <laughs> well, who were the prophets? Prophets were the spokesmen for God. Look at them like press secretaries, news announcers, but instead of fake news, they give the real deal, straight from the throne room of God. It's like they, they come on the scene and, say, and they say, now a word from our Creator. And they give a message, something that God wanted the people to hear. And their message centered on two things. They proclaimed God's Word and they predicted future events. They proclaimed God's Word, they predicted future events, and all of it was an anticipation of salvation. Now, even though all throughout history God spoke to the prophets concerning Himself, the prophets themselves never really made the connection in their minds. They, they couldn't fully understand. Verse 12 says the big picture was not revealed to them. You know, when you put up your Christmas lights and it's all done and you plug them in and they actually work, you stand back and you look at the finished product and, and you go, oh man, it's beautiful. Well, for the prophets, you might say for them, they had all the lights strung together, but they couldn't get it straight. To them, it was like, like this. Trust me, I've been tempted to hang my lights like that. (laughs) Lisa, I hung the lights. Don't they look good? 
My point is this, when it comes to salvation, the prophets couldn't make out the big picture. They couldn't understand it fully. It was tangled up in their minds. Verse 11, they were searching uh, what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. In other words, they couldn't make the connection between a suffering Savior and a reigning King. They saw the cross in Psalm 22, but they saw the Messiah coming in power and glory to earth to establish his kingdom in Isaiah 11. They saw the glory of Psalm 2. However, they also saw the suffering of Isaiah 53. They saw the triumph on the Mount of Olives where the returning Messiah would stand, but they also saw the blood on Mount Calvary upon which Messiah would die. How could this be? They must have wondered that he would be despised, rejected, and smitten, suffering it, also ruling and reigning. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't connect. They saw Mount Calvary, and they saw the Mount of Olives. But what they didn't see was the valley between the two, the valley of about 2,000 years. They didn't understand that there were going to be two comings, that Messiah would come as a suffering Savior before returning as a conquering queen, a king, rather. You and I were in a unique position of living in that interval of time between the suffering of Christ, which is in, in the past, and the glory of Christ, which is in the future. We live in that age of grace where God has given all mankind the opportunity for salvation. So Peter says here, the prophets wrote some things which they themselves really didn't fully grasp or understand, even though they searched for their meanings diligently. But now we know, we understand what they wrote of. Peter says in verse 12, To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Again, these prophets were like the the strings of light, month after month, year after year, century after century, linking these together. The Spirit of God would speak to the hearts and they would record what God was saying. They would record the prophecies concerning the first and second coming of Jesus, yet they didn't fully understand how it all fit together. It wasn't plugged in yet, so to speak, so they couldn't see the finished product. But as soon as Jesus comes on the scene, the lights are on, uh, in the light of the world, the connections have been made, and Peter says, though they couldn't make the connection, we can. We see how it all fits, how it all points to Jesus. We, we understand. That's why the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, to whom also he made the world. Now, seeing how we are close to Christmas, let's take a, a few moments this morning, if you would, to make the connection with a few of the prophecies given to the prophets concerning the first coming of Jesus Christ. In order, that, in order to do that, we've got to go way back to the very beginning, the book of beginnings, if you would, back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's there in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve sinned and that, that we read of this first prophecy concerning Jesus. Listen to what the Lord said to Satan in Genesis 3:15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is the first mention of the gospel in Scripture. 
Christ would come, God says, and he will bruise or literally crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent would bruise the heel of the promised seed. So here we see the picture of the cross where Christ was bruised for our iniquities, Isaiah 53, where he cleansed our sin with his own blood, thereby crushing the head of Satan's authority in our lives. Now what's interesting about that verse is that the term her seed is is used, and, and that really is a natural impossibility unless the one that would come from a woman would come in a way that was supernatural. And that's exactly what happened according to Galatians, 6, uh, Galatians 4, 4. It says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth the Son born of a woman. Moving on to the prophet Isaiah. He verifies this. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the first and only one time that a virgin, apart from a man, conceived and brought forth a child. Let's move ahead from Isaiah. We'll come back to him in a moment. But let's go to the prophet Micah. And it's there we are told where Jesus, where the Messiah would be born. Now, I am sure the prophet Micah did not quite understand it at the time, but it doesn't change the fact that 700 years before the birth of Christ, Micah wrote that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Listen to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Epathra, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Clearly, prophecy of where Jesus would be born and of who Jesus is. His goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Now, to look at the situation at the time of Christ's birth, things weren't connecting, especially for Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth, not Bethlehem. And yet God, through the prophet, spoke that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. No problem for God. All things are possible with God, right? So in order for them to get to Bethlehem, God prompted Caesar Augustus to take a census. So God used the census to get Joseph out of Nazareth and to move his pregnant wife a hundred miles south to the appointed place of his birth. Ladies, imagine that, being nine months pregnant and traveling a hundred miles on the back of a donkey. I think you might have some words about your husband. (laughs) Shouldn't we be doing this a long time ago? And as they walked through that Jordan Valley, I wonder if Joseph might have maybe been muttering under his breath. You know, this census makes no census. <laughs> Isn't it enough this Augustus rules the world? Why does he have to brag about the number of his subjects? Yet God was using something as spiritually trivial as a Caesar's inflated ego to fulfill his divine eternal will. I think that should be a lesson to all of us when we feel like complaining. God has divine reasons and will for working all things together for good in our lives. And we need to recognize that. But this amazing and miraculous prophecy from Micah was given some 700 years in advance. All these prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, through the prophets, they didn't quite understand how it all fit together, how it all came together uh, at the night of Bethlehem. And there are many, many more prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. Malachi 3.1 Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Again, no other holy book makes the predictions that the Bible does and then backs them up by coming to 100% of the time. One prophecy right after another, going back to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 9, chapter 9, verse 2, speaking of the coming Messiah, 
uh, Isaiah declares, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And the fulfillment, Jesus' own words in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Over and over again, the prophecy, the fulfillment. The prophecy, the fulfillment. Peter says in verse 12 that God revealed to the prophets what they didn't fully understand so that we can understand what the heart of the gospel is. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. Salvation has come. When Jesus was born, a long, dark night had ended and the first rays of a new day had dawned. A grim past gave way to this glorious present and a hopeful future. Salvation has come. Connection has been made. So that's our first strand of life. Let's get to the second strand of life. Number one, the prophets predicted it. Number two, the angels, they pondered it. Now, angels are interesting beings. You know, when it comes to angels, I'm sure they're always ready and they're excited to be sent out by the Lord, to be used by the Lord. But when it comes to this thing called salvation, this thing called God's grace, they are really, really passionate about it. Peter says in the last part of verse 12 that this gospel of grace and salvation has been preached to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven are things which angels desire to look into. I like that phrase. They desire to look into. That word desire, is a, it's a strong word. It means a passionate, intense desire. Jesus used that same word there at the Last Supper and the Passover when he said in Luke twenty-two fifteen, with a fervent desire of desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And then Peter says, when it comes to salvation, the angels desire to look into. That phrase, look into, means to, to stoop sideways. You know, it, it's used of Peter and John as they stoop to look down into the empty tomb of Jesus. It has the idea of bending forward, stretching out your neck to really look to see into something. And that's what Peter is saying is going on with the angels. They're on the edge of their seat, straining their necks with intense longing, looking to see the salvation that God has made available to us, to you and me. They're radically interested in what's going on here on earth and how it's playing out. And let me tell you, they've seen just about everything. I mean, think about what they've seen already. First, they saw Lucifer rebel and get cast out of heaven, along with one-third of, of their fellow angelic beings. They saw this creature, man, that God had made rebel and consequently get cast out of the Garden of Eden. They watched as a few of the angels had to, they, they were dispatched to keep Adam and Eve from eating the tree of life after they had eaten of the forbidden fruit. They watched as God reached out to man and told Eve that that which was coming forth from the seed of a woman will crush Satan. They watched as God's plan was unfolding and the Lord called a man by the name of Abraham to come and follow him and even at his old age have a son. They saw that. They saw how through Abraham God was going to start a new nation, the Hebrews, followers of Yahweh. They saw how from Abraham's seed would come this one who was going to be the Messiah and Savior of the world. They also watched as the Lord sent two angels to that city of Sodom and Gomorrah to get a servant lot out of that city to save Lot and his family before he destroyed the cities in what would be a preview of that which would come that he would do to the world that rejected his love. These angels witnessed the Lord giving instructions to Moses concerning building the Ark of the Covenant and, and, and the mercy seat. And they would look down on that very spot where the priest on the Day of Atonement sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice. And they watched as God the Son, Jesus was sent to fulfill the mission that he would lower himself to the point of being a baby. And then think about 
what they saw at the birth of Jesus. I mean, angels were there. They were a part of the, the whole whole deal. They announced it. They watched as head honcho angel Gabriel told Joseph not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife, for she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 20 and 21. They watched as Gabriel would give the message to Mary that indeed the child inside of her is the Son of God. They watched as some of the fellow angels were sent to go and sing praises to a group of shepherds in the field. They watched as Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. They watched in horror as Jesus carried the cross up that hill called Calvary outside the city of Jerusalem. And they watched as he was nailed to that cross and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then they rejoiced in his resurrection. They rejoiced as Jesus broke the chains of death. I mean, think about it. Who was there at the tomb of Jesus when he rose from the dead and told the women? A couple of angels. God's plan of redemption was accomplished. The price was paid. Sinners became saints. Enemies became friends. And salvation has come. And the angels all look on in amazement. They saw what Jesus went through for all of mankind. And now they look at us and they go, Do you see? Do you see how great your salvation is? Do you really understand what God has done for you? And they wonder why on earth anyone would reject such an offer of salvation. They are perplexed with us. Now, why is that? Well, simple answer is because angels can't be saved. Only humans can. Only human beings can be a part of the redemption that comes to believing in Christ. Now, there are all different kinds of angels. There are fallen angels, and there are faithful angels, and there are bad angels, and there are good angels, and there are elect angels. But there are no saved angels. We can be saved. They cannot. Only humans can experience God's saving grace. Now, why is that? Well, I personally believe it's because the angels, when they fell, those that fell, the, the one-third, they were in the presence of God. They beheld His beauty. They beheld the glory and awe and wonder. They saw His power and majesty. They looked directly in the face of God and they still chose to sin and they still chose to rebel. So God says, there's no more second chances for you guys. Man, on the other hand, not face to face with God, though one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But until then, God has given man a second chance in order to find salvation through faith and to be in His presence forever. And that is why the angels ponder over this whole aspect of salvation. That's the, why the angels are looking down and going, man, this salvation, this is interesting. It's marvelous. And they ponder it. Here's what I see. When, when Jesus came to this earth, the angels watched as God gave his best to the earth's wars. And I, I think they were fascinated by that. I think they were fascinated when a criminal becomes a missionary. I think they're fascinated when a blasphemist becomes a born-again child of God. When a drug addict becomes a pastor. They see a changed life of a person and it just amazes them. There's an unknown author who wrote this many years ago. Longfellow could take a sheet of paper, write a poem on it, and make it worth $60,000. That's talent. Rockefeller could sign a piece of paper and make it worth millions. That is capital. A seamstress can take a piece, piece of material worth $5 and make it into clothing worth $50. That's a skill. A merchant can buy an article for $0.80, cents, put it on his counter, and sell it for a dollar. That is business. But God can take a worthless, sinful life Wash it, cleanse it, put His Holy Spirit within it, and make it a blessing to all humanity. That is salvation, and that salvation is available for all who choose to accept it. I love that. One more thing about angels. 
We're told in Hebrews 1.14 that these angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. And the thing about angels is, you know, they do a good job. They're kind of low-key. They work undercover. They are like God's secret agents. They don't draw attention to themselves. They just do the work of God. And I know you've had angels involved in your life, and they are on a constant basis, and you're probably not even aware of it because they're doing so well. And I think maybe they know they need to do well because there's a very curious little verse found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that Paul wrote that, that maybe might have bothered them a little bit. I'm not sure. I'm just speculating. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 3, Paul wrote, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? And I can just hear these angels going, What's up with that? <laughs> them judge us? I mean, these human beings who are made a little lower than the angels. These Christians who rarely pray, who don't win us much, who take for granted their salvation. They don't even know that much about us as angels. All they think is we just fly around all day eating angel food cake. I mean, they're going to judge me. But it's true. As a Christian, you're going to, with Christ, judge the angels and even make that final pronouncement for those angelic beings that have fallen. Now, here's something very special that you can do this morning if you haven't done so already, and that would make these angels really, really, really excited. If you're not already, get saved. Get saved. Jesus said this in Luke 15.10, Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So just picture these angelic beings, and they're stooping down with passionate, intense desiring to see a person maybe in the, perhaps in the process of salvation. And they're, they're like, they're leaning over this railing and they're looking down and saying, look, look, it's about to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. I know it. It's like that home run hitter coming up to the plate and the, 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 the score is tied, the bases are loaded and two outs and, and he's getting ready and you know he's going to hit that home run or that, or that you know, it's a Super Bowl and that, that you know, the field goal kicker comes out and, and just the field goal, they're going to win the ball and they're there and you're ready for it and then it happens. Yeah, and the crowd roars and screams. And, oh, this is awesome. And the angels, they're looking on and at mankind and looking at the gospel being shared and suddenly that person says, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me of my sin. Come into my heart. And suddenly, these days, they're er- yes, yeah, they're erupting in praise. They're rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Imagine what goes on at a crusade, you know, when many people give their lives to Christ. There's a party going on in heaven. I can't help but think, but on Sunday mornings uh, throughout the world, they're peering into churches and they're listening and they're waiting for that pastor to share the gospel, just waiting for one more person to raise their hand and take that step of faith toward salvation. And I think they're also probably waiting with great anticipation for any one of us just to share the gospel. Why? Because they see what a big deal it is. They see how huge this is. They see what God is offering to mankind. A second chance. The opportunity to get right with God. Why on earth would you not want to get this good news out? I, I would venture to say they are chomping at the bit for themselves just to have the opportunity to get the good news out, to share the gospel. And we know, according to Scripture and through our studies in Revelation, that they're going to get the chance. Over in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 and 7, during the great tribulation period, 
It says there, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. I just just picture this angel flying across, saying, Yeah, it's my turn now, and he's going to get his chance to preach. They've been itching to preach. My question is, to all of us, are we? Are we just as excited as the angels are when one sinner comes to repentance? Are we just excited as the angels are to be given the opportunity to share the good news of the gospel, to share this thing that we call salvation? Prophets wrote about it. The angels pondered it. Are we ready to preach it? Now we know there are those who say, well, you know, I would share the gospel, but isn't that the pastor's job? I had a co-worker years ago. I was working in a grocery store and, and I was talking to the manager and this guy walked up to me and he says, hey Tom, tell Terry about Jesus. <laughs> Why don't you tell Terry? I mean, I will, but you tell him about Jesus. There are those today who say, well, I would share with my neighbor, but you know, I just, I don't want to offend them. Or, or I'll share with this guy at work or this gal at work, but you know what? We've got to work together. I don't want to make my environment uncomfortable. I, I don't really like confrontation. Let's look at this from a different perspective. What if your neighbor's house was on fire and they're inside the house? Well, I really don't want to disturb them. I'm going to offend them because it might, they might make them feel uncomfortable if I tell them that. Or I really don't like confrontation. I, you know. I'll wait for the fire department. It's their job to, to take care of the fire. You know, no, not mine. I, I mean, think about what that sounds like. You know, I really don't want to stand before the Lord when the Lord is looking for fruit in my life and all he sees is excuses. Here's my point. Salvation is a big deal. It is a privilege to be able to share the hope of salvation to a dying world. That's something we really, really should not take for granted. So when it comes to our salvation, point number one, the prophets predicted it. Number two, the angels pondered it. And now point number three, Jesus provided it. In other words, back to our Christmas light analogy, Jesus plugged it all in. The light of the world came to the earth and gave his life to save our salvation has come through Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 11 again. Peter writes, Searching what, or what manner of time, the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he testified before, and the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. That line right there. Isaiah 53 tells us Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes, we are healed. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5.21, speaking of Jesus, for he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Salvation is found in no one else or in anything else. It's only through Jesus Christ and what he has done for us by going to the cross, dying for us, and rising again from the dead. That's where salvation has come. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the answer. And what a beautiful picture we have all throughout Scripture through prophecy given to the prophets, spoken by the angels, and revealed to us through Jesus Christ. Now there's one more set of lights that I would love if we plugged in today in the line of prophecy that I believe we're about to see and it would make this Christmas the very best Christmas ever. It would be the, the plugging in, the fulfillment of Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. I'm okay with that. Let, let, let's plug that in. You know, let's bring that fulfillment today. I, I mean, that would be good. If Jesus would come back today, maybe he'd come back, say it with me, right now. You know what I say. Maybe right now. Now would be good, Lord. But let me say this. When it comes to prophecy and end times, the lights are all strung together. Everything that needs to be fulfilled before Jesus' return has been fulfilled. Except for the, the rapture of the church. That's taking us home. And then the tribulation. So the only thing left is the rapture of the church. So knowing this, Paul would write then in Romans thirteen eleven. And do this, knowing this, that now it is high time to wake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. I like that. We've been talking about salvation. The prophets predicted it. The angels pondered it. Jesus provided it. And now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 2, 1 and 3. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? The writer here says, cautions us, do not neglect such a great salvation. In other words, in realizing how precious this gift of salvation is, be careful you don't drift away from what you know. That term drift away there in Hebrews is a nautical term. It means to, to, to use of a ship drifting out of sea. It can happen to a ship where maybe the anchor isn't all the way down or maybe uh, someone forgets to chart the wind and it starts to pull it off course away. You know, a similar thing happens, you know, when I was a kid, I'd go to Newport Beach out in Southern California and, and I'd body surf and I'd start right in front of lifeguard stand number 24. And I'd body surf and body surf and about an hour and a half, two hours later, I'm like at lifeguard stand minus 30 or something. It's like, like man, how did I get way down here? I got my mind off of that, 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 that mark right there, that lifeguard stand. The same thing is true spiritually. There is an undertow in this world, an unseen current that it has its goal to take us miles away from Christ, miles away from our landmark and, and pull us down to make us go under. That's why the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12, too, to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In other words, don't take your eyes off of him. Every corner, every mountain, every obstacle we face is seen with Jesus in our view. He's our leader. He's our strength. He's our hope. He's able to chart the winds of circumstances in our lives and get us safely through any turbulence that may come our way. He's able to give us an eternal perspective, a heavenly perspective, rather than a fearful earthly one. But that's why the writer of Hebrews tells us to be careful that we don't drift away from such a great salvation. And notice here that also the drifting that occurs is directly related to us not giving earnest heed to the Word of God. He begins that verse, give earnest heed. In other words, pay careful attention. So the idea of drifting away is directly related to not being in the Word of God and, and not being in the Word of God is directly related to, ne to neglecting our salvation. It's unplugging of the light, if you would. 
That's why the writer here says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That word neglect means to sit passively by or to make light of something, to underappreciate. Just a description of, of apathy and complacency. How does that happen? How can we neglect so great a salvation? Well, it begins in our hearts. When I fail to realize just how great my salvation truly is. When I fail to realize what I'm saved from and what I am saved for. There's a difference. I am saved from my sin. I'm saved from the penalty of my sin. I'm saved from hell and and the torment and the fires of hell. I'm saved from the wrath of Almighty God that's going to be poured out on the Christ-rejecting world. Yet I am saved for heaven. I am saved for an eternity with my God and my Savior. I am saved for eternal life. But if I'm neglecting such a great salvation that the the prophet predicted, the angels pondered, and that Jesus provided, then I'm on the road to my heart becoming dull spiritually, which then leads me to being insensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading, and it leads me to, to not looking for the Lord should return, but it leaves me spiritually weak and in danger of drifting further and further away from the Lord. Listen, we must not neglect the salvation by letting the cares and the, and the concerns and the responsibilities of this life pull us away from the Lord. We must not neglect the salvation by going after temporary things, by thinking, yeah, just a little more money or a little better job or a bigger home or a nicer car. We must not neglect the salvation by not applying the resources that are ours in Christ Jesus. And we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard lest we drift away. Drift away. Maybe this morning as we close, you realize as a Christian you've been neglecting your salvation. Maybe you've been distracted and allow other things to get in the way and you've taken your eyes off of the Lord and now you've begun to drift. The winds of circumstances have blown you off course and you've been affected by the undertow of this world. Maybe you've allowed some compromise to come into your life and now you're going, how did I get way over here? And you're no longer spending time in God's Word. It's been hit and miss on, on a coming to church. You used to get up and have a quiet time every morning and praying, and now it just becomes, you know, you only do it when a problem happens. Listen, come back to Christ today, the anchor of your soul. Don't wait. Don't say tomorrow. Make it right today. Give Him your burdens, your cares. Put them in His hands right now. Recommit your life to Him this morning. Reconnect your life with Him. And if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, <laughs> Why not today? Especially when you realize all that He's done for you. You know, if, you, if you've never personally accepted Christ as your Savior, perhaps you've made some decision years ago, but you didn't follow through on that. Make the connection again this morning. Let's pray. Father, just thank You for Your love and Your grace. Thank You for our salvation. We are a blessed people, Lord. Lord, help us to keep our eyes focused on you in the days in which we're living. Not turn to the left, not turn to the right. Help us to be men and women of your word, and not only hearers of your word, but doers of your word. And Lord, help us to look for every opportunity to share such a great salvation that we have, especially, Lord, as we see the holiday coming up, Christmas time coming up, Lord, and and people that don't know you. Help us to point them to you. It's all about you, Jesus. And Father, finally, I pray if there's anyone here that does not know you. Lord, I know angels are peering down right now and they're listening. Lord, if there's anyone here that does not know you, 
I pray that you would touch their heart today. They would see their need to repent and give their life to you. While the heads are bowed and their eyes are closed, I want to give you that opportunity. Anybody at all, you're here, you want to give your life to Christ, just raise your hand so I can pray for you this morning. Anybody at all. You want to be born again today. You want to, to know if you were to die that you're saved for eternity. You're saved to be with your, your Lord and Savior. Anybody at all? Just raise your hand. Father, help us all if we've driven, drifted away, Lord, to reconnect uh, those lights with you, Lord, to reconnect with you. Lord, help us to see just the sacrifice that was paid, how great the salvation we have, not take it for granted. Lord, but to be in fellowship with you through our prayers. Lord, through reading of your word. Lord, through, through fellowship with one another. And Lord, give us the boldness during this time to speak forth your truth, the gospel. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're coming back. Thank you, Lord, that I believe it's very, very soon. We give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.